Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Good day to everyone that is listening to this broadcast. This is a studio recording of the next session in our series on grace. We apologize that the live recording wasn't recorded too clearly, so I opted to do a brief studio recording of the same. We're continuing our series on grace, and the specific focus for the past few weeks has been on how humility accesses a greater grace. Uh, For this particular segment, we're going to focus on how courageous and costly obedience in both father and son, that is spiritual father and spiritual son, evidences and expresses true humility to which grace is attracted for the accomplishment of divine purpose. So the focus will be on how the grace of God would be attracted to the humility within the father-son dynamic. And that humility within the father-son dynamic would be expressed in terms of how the father and the son are able to walk together jointly in acts of obedience to which the Lord will call both of them to. And most often where the spiritual son would be required to obey the instructions of a spiritual father, but two also where a spiritual father would be bold enough to lead the son via clear commands of the father, the heavenly father, uh, that has placed those commands upon him to lead his sons and the household that he leads into significant aspects of God's will. So the focus is this joint compliance, joint compliance or joint obedience of both father and his sons in the execution of God's will. My point being that this would be an expression of humility because humility quintessentially has at its bedrock a high value and reverence for the Word of God or for the instruction of the Lord. And so I want to explore this a bit more fully now. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6 says, We are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Uh, So, Paul is very clear here that we, the church, cannot punish disobedience unless our obedience is complete or mature. So we cannot be used as instruments of God to bring to bear the judgment of God upon any expression of lawlessness, wickedness or disobedience if in us a standard of obedience has not been perfected or completed. Now, that particular issue is quite a vast one, which could be illustrated from the scriptures in varied manners. But um, 
suffice it to say for now, I just want to focus on this phrase, completed obedience. So my obedience or the obedience of the church must be completed or fulfilled or matured. Only then can God um, have or be legitimate to express judgment upon every other expression of disobedience prevalent in the world. So this idea of completed obedience grabs my attention. A complete or fulfilled obedience is one that is filled out according to the Greek meaning of the term complete in this verse. An obedience that is filled out or mature. Now this in part refers to obedience to all of God's principles in His Word as well as to a consistency in the same. Not only must we be obedient but consistently obedient. This also includes and will demand that we resolve to obey God to the point of death. As Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2 verse 8. So what I want to stress is that a completed or matured obedience is not simply obedience to the entirety of God's laws or commandments or instructions as communicated in and through his word, but that also its expression is, is demonstrated in the life of a son of God by that son's commitment to obey God even to the point of death. Where the son would not place high value on the preservation of his welfare in the pursuit of God's purposes, but that God's purposes would be done at any cost, even to the point of death. And that's not only literal death, or actual death, but death unto self, death to one's own proclivities, death to one's own inclinations, death to private ambition or self-centered intentions. There are many things that in us that must die if ever we are to come to a place of completed obedience. And so, as explained in prior sessions, this refers to courageous and daring acts of obedience without concern for self-preservation. Now, within the father-son dyad, if within this particular wineskin, the spiritual father, spiritual son wineskin, I demonstrated in previous sessions that there exists great potential for profound and maximum grace transfer, then if that is true, a son must subscribe to a level of obedience to accurate biblical doctrine and commands of his spiritual father in Christ to the degree where the son does not live in self-preservation but is prepared to lose his life in the process of obedience. So to maximize grace transfer, to recruit the, the fullest potential grace download unto himself, a son has got to come to a place in his life where he will not count the cost to obey an instruction of God vested in and communicated through his spiritual father to him. Now, similarly too, the father, the spiritual father, must be willing to obey God to the point of death himself. Not just in reference to God's own revealed dictates for his life, but also to have the courage to command his son, 
to comply with expectations that God lays on the Son. Expectations which God expects to be communicated via the Father. So, for example, consider that Abraham was not willing just to not only obey God in sacrificing Isaac, but he was also obedient and willing to obey God in communicating this to Isaac, such that Isaac, true to the pattern of what we would see in Jesus years later after their time, Isaac too would lay down his life to be sacrificed. So it's not simply about a son obeying to the point of death. It's also about a father's willingness to obey God in the communication of a significant demand that God would place on the life of his son. So recall also from our previous sessions that no one prepared to obey in this fashion actually loses his life, but he actually gains it, according to the New Testament. So in this session, I want to connect the following principles that we've explained in prior sessions. Firstly, grace is communicated through the Word of God. Then the Word of God is communicated to you primarily through a spiritual father in the Lord. Thirdly, the spiritual father wineskin is a most ideal construct for the grace of God to have maximum flow and operation. Spiritual fathering is not a command. It's a privilege and an opportunity to realize maximum grace download in your life and spirit. Those who embrace it find an abundance of grace available. Fourthly, there must be an open heart of mutual love and honor between the spiritual father and the spiritual son for maximum grace transfer. An open heart, mutual love, mutual honor. The heart of the son must be turned, open and given to the spiritual father. The word of God released through the spiritual father to the son must be received as God's word and not the opinion of a man. This word must be received with the spirit of the spiritual son and not primarily with the mind of his soul. So the word laden with grace must be received with the spirit and not with the mind of the soul. Now this is crucial if the son is to obey the word. If we receive the word with rationality, trying to negotiate the details in the mind of our soul, the potential to disobey is heightened. But if we receive the word with the mind of the spirit, the obedience rate will be raised to a far greater degree. Now, we also illustrated that humility is evidenced by obedience to the word. You are only humble when you obey the word. It said of Christ in Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the death of the cross. So it demands a death to one's own opinions that contradict God's word and the obedience thereof. And through the act of obedience, grace inherent within the word heard infuses the life of the spiritual son such that the glory of God is displayed for men to see in his or her life. And then I also encouraged you in a prior session that 
private acts of obedience foster corporate welfare and facilitate corporate progression of the body of Christ into maturity. So my personal acts of obedience will bring corporate benefit to the community of the body of Christ to which I relate and even beyond. Now, in addition to all of this, the obedience of a spiritual son has the powerful and perhaps least understood effect of catapulting the spiritual father into a higher level of understanding aspects of God's nature and functioning within a wider and more powerful expression of God's purposes. Now, this last particular point is, like I said, extremely powerful, but perhaps the most least understood within the father-son dynamic. And to reiterate, the obedience of a son has the effect of catapulting the spiritual father into a higher level of understanding and aspect of God's nature and also a far wider functioning and a more powerful expression of the execution of God's will in a domain that will far exceed what was prevalent up to that point. Now this particular point, I'll just mention it now at the start of this, of this broadcast, but I will demonstrate it um, as we proceed. But before we, we get there, I want to give some commentary on a very well-known portion of Scripture. It's Amos 3 and verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And that is the King James rendering of Amos 3.3. 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, I want to speak in reference to can a spiritual father and a spiritual son walk together unless they be agreed. So we're going to contextualize this verse within the construct of a spiritual father and spiritual son walking together in the accomplishment of God's purposes, both being extremely humble, that humility measured by the degree to which they obey God. When God sees that, it says he gives grace to the humble. Those two individuals in that economy will be the recipients of a huge quantum and quality of grace that will be measured out to them such that they will come to a new, a new place of efficiency and success, of efficacy in the doing of God's will in the earth. So, can two walk together unless they be agreed? The New American Standard Version of the Bible renders the same verse as follows. Amos 3.3 in ASB. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? So where the King James says, except they be agreed, in ASB says, unless they have made an appointment. Now, these, these two differing renderings are not contradictory. If you look at the Hebrew word for agreed in King James or the Hebrew word for an appointment in the NASB, the Hebrew word is Ya'ad. And Ya'ad has the following range of meanings. 
means to appoint, to summon, to engage, to agree, to assemble. It also means allotted or appointed time, such as, for example, in 2 Samuel 20 verse 5, David appointed to Amasa to assemble the men of Judah within an appointed time. So it has this, this time frame element attached to it. The word could also take on the meaning of appointing or designating someone to be married. And you'll find this in Exodus chapter 21 verse 8 and 9. Still another meaning is to meet someone at an appointed time. So as you can hear, the word is loaded. Now, if we take the full range, the semantic range of meanings uh, embedded within this Hebrew phrase, ya'ad, and attempt to apply them uh, to our day in which we live, specifically to apply to can a spiritual son walk together with his spiritual father. So the father-son wineskin is going beyond romanticism. We now must walk together to flesh out the purposes of the Lord in the year. So as is indicated already, the word ya'ad, agreed or appointment, has strong indications of covenantal intimacy because it's used in the context of marriage in other places in the scriptures. So we can rephrase the question, can two walk together unless they covenant intimately? That is, the spiritual father and spiritual son relationship must be one of deep commitment, deep covenant, deep heart joining. And this is modeled, I think, most ideally in Ruth's covenantal commitment that she made to Naomi when she said, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus, an intensely strong covenantal commitment. So, the spiritual father and spiritual son cannot walk together to any degree of significant purpose being done unless there's a strong love, strong bonding. Secondly, um, can two walk together unless they agree? So the word ya'ad literally does mean to agree. And the King James correctly interpreted it as such. But that's just one of the nuances of the range of meanings. But it does include agreement. In other words, the two must be of one heart and of one mind. Um, Timothy and Paul most ideally model this particular thought because... Paul said of his son Timothy in the Lord, I have no one who is like-minded or who was equal in soul to me. In other words, Timothy and Paul, this is spiritual son and spiritual father, they were like-minded, they were equal-souled. The Greek term is isosukos. In other words, if the soul concerns our thoughts, our mind, and our feelings, it literally means... Timothy and Paul thought alike, felt alike, and even deci decided alike. So their thoughts, decisions, and feelings were identical. So then can two walk together 
unless they agree, unless they are one in heart, one in mind, unless their thoughts, decisions, and feelings are one. Thirdly, as I've indicated, the word ya'ad also implies to agree upon the destination, to agree upon the place to which we are walking. So we cannot walk together until we agree upon the destination where we are going. So the spiritual father-son dynamic, both individuals must fully understand the nature of their walking together and what it is to accomplish. If you don't understand the destination or the outcome of the relationship, you will abuse the relationship or have a completely, uh, completely misunderstand and misapply what the relationship seeks to accomplish. Now, the goal of the spiritual father, spiritual son dynamic is literally the formation of the image of Christ or total maturity. A spiritual father seeks to mature the son in the image of Christ and to lead his son into intimacy with the heavenly father. That's the focus. But beyond that, a mature spiritual father-son relationship will be used by God as the means through which significant divine purpose is effected in the earth. So, for example, Paul brings Timothy to maturity through his teachings, but also, so in terms of that point, Timothy is being groomed and the image of Christ is being formed in him. But beyond that, Paul and Timothy work together to, to accomplish significant purpose. Apart from the, the very close interaction and the delivery of doctrine, of lifestyle, um, of the entirety of his soul um, to his son Timothy in the Lord, Paul also would engage Timothy as a son to, to give him certain functionality or purpose in reference to accomplishing specific aspects of God's will in the earth. So the father-son wineskin mustn't just be focused on the one without the other. The one is actually preparatory to the other. I will focus on that in a later session specifically. But we could say the same for, for Mordecai and Esther, for Naomi and Ruth, for, for Moses and Joshua, for Elijah and Elisha, for Jesus and the twelve disciples. This truth could be easily demonstrated. What is true for them ought to be true for us. So just to recap, can two walk together unless they are covenantally intimate? Secondly, can two walk together unless they agree of one heart, one mind? Thirdly, can two walk together unless they agree upon the destination? Do they understand the outcome? And also, are they... Are they committed to fulfilling the purpose of God attendant with the relationship? Now, fourthly, the word ya'ad also implies the following. Can two walk together unless they agree upon the appointed time? So, like I said, there's a time element attached to this word ya'ad. Now, it's not chronological time, as in the Greek term chronos. But more specifically, are they aware of the gravity? If they are to walk together, both must be aware of and discerning of the gravity of the spiritual hour 
In other words, and this is denoted by the Greek phrase kairos, another term for time, right? Are they aware of the kairos in which they live, the urgency of that hour, and the attendant um, spiritual purposes that the Father has determined to be done within that hour? So the Greek term kairos as opposed to chronos, chronos is the passage of, 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 of time, as in seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades, centuries, literal time as we know it. By kairos, the Greek term kairos is an opportune time in which certain predetermined events determined by God must occur. So in chronos, kairos can take place. God will superimpose his kairos in chronos. So in whichever time period in the human history that you live, in that dispensation of time, there's an expectation of God um, for that time period. We call that kairos in which you live. Now, can two walk together unless they understand the demands of the present kairos in the chronos in which they live? Now, just some scriptures to illustrate this. For example, Romans chapter 13 and verse 11 to 14 says the following. Do this knowing the time, knowing the kairos. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Now, the scripture says knowing the time, and then Paul goes on to Exhort not to be overcome by sleep, awaken out of your sleep, and not to um, become, not to succumb to works or deeds of darkness, but to put on the armor of light and to divorce yourself from any kind of lasciviousness or licentiousness or sensuality, and then put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But he prefaces all of these imperatives by saying, but knowing the time. So there's a, there's a behavioral pattern that is expected in a particular kairos of God, a behavioral pattern. There are priorities that are true in one kairos that perhaps would not have been true in a previous kairos. Even the text says in Acts that in times of ignorance God winked at, but now he commands men everywhere to repent. And in our present day, might I add, in which we are living in, the demand for God now is so urgent, such a priority. Uh, now the time is more urgent than previously. So the phrase knowing the time in Romans 13 implies knowing what behavior is appropriate within the kairos of God. Certain activity must may be inconsistent with a particular kairos. Journeying is a process that must bear relevance to the outcome. I want to say that again. Journeying 
is a process that must be a relevance to the outcome. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? Walking implies journeying together. But your walking together is only relevant if you understand the outcome and relevant to our present focus on this particular point of kairos, there will be an outcome in the kairos in which you live, a demand of God, an expectation of God. So your walking together with your father is only relevant if that outcome is accomplished. So can two walk together unless they be agreed? Before we proceed, just another scripture that highlights the urgency of the time. Remember, we are focusing on the interpretation of can two walk together unless they be agreed. This word agreed is ya'ad. And one of the nuances of ya'ad implies an appointed time. But we're dealing with time as not in chronos, not actual time. But can you walk together? It's impossible to walk together unless you understand the urgency of the kairos or the spiritual time in which you live. Otherwise, your behavior and your set of priorities will not be um, relevant or sufficient enough to accomplish what God expects you to do. Another text in this regard would be Haggai chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. The scripture says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses while this house lies desolate? So the people had no priority to build God's house because they say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to build. But they focused on building their own panel houses. The activity was not relevant to the Kairos. In that particular time segment, God had expected them to prioritize the building of His house, but they prioritized the building of their own panel or private houses. So when we don't understand the time and the urgency thereof, we will engage in the wrong building activity. Can two walk together? unless they understand the appointed time. Spiritual fathers and sons must walk together because they both realize the pressing expectation of God upon them in a set season. Now, it'll probably be highly frustrating to a spiritual father for a son who expresses a desire to walk with him when that son has no understanding of the critical nature of the times in which they live the urgency thereof, and what priorities God expects for them within that set time. Um, I'm just thinking in my mind of another verse where Paul, in his letter to Timothy, uh, says phrases like, But you, Timothy, but you, my son. In other words, others can do what they want to in the last days, but things ought to be vastly different for you, my son. you got to adopt a vastly different set of priorities if we are to walk together. Now, fifthly, another nuance of this word Ya'ad. Can two walk together unless they know the allotted time in which they are to work? 
um, recall, like I gave the example in 2 Samuel 20 and verse 5, David appointed a specific time to Amasa to gather or assemble the men of Judah. He had to do it within a particular time frame. So similarly, can two walk together unless they know how much time they have to literally perform and do the will of the Lord? So here issues of a sense of urgency, soberness and seriousness with which a task is executed um, are brought to bear. Okay. In fact, let me just quote the verse. 2 Samuel 20 verse 5. Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which he had appointed him. Unfortunately, Amasa ignored the time frame that David established for him to fulfill the task signed to him. Now, if we're going to walk together, spiritual fathers and spiritual sons, there cannot be any lag, drag, um, delay, um, the dragging of our feet in the doing of God's purposes, a sense of focus, or, of focus and, 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 and great diligence must accompany all that we do for God. So two cannot walk together in disagreement. Two must walk together in agreement. Now, further, two cannot walk together unless they agree on the time of the appointed meeting to commence their journey and the time allotted in which they are to accomplish the journey. Spiritually applied, two cannot walk together unless they have the same prophetic awareness and sense of the urgency of the times. Okay. Jacob walked in agreement with Abram. Joshua walked in agreement with Moses. Ruth walked in agreement with Naomi. Esther walked in agreement with Mordecai. Elisha walked in agreement with Elijah. The 11 apostles, that's apart from Judas, obviously, walked in agreement with Jesus. Timothy walked in agreement with Paul. Now, what I would like to do from this point onwards is to illustrate from a few spiritual father, spiritual son types in the Bible, this whole idea of can two walk together unless they be agreed and apply some of the nuances of this Hebrew phrase, Ya'ad, that we've just discussed. And two, also be at the back of your mind. We want to also start to demonstrate how that the obedience of a son can catapult the father into a new understanding of the nature of God and also increase that father's sphere of function or domain in which he would execute the purposes of God in the earth. As a first example, let's look at the example of Methuselah. Now, walking in agreement together with your spiritual father is powerful. Also, the obedience unto death of a spiritual son can enhance his spiritual father's walk in God. Okay? Now, Methuselah is the son of Enoch. Our text is Genesis 5 and verse 21 and 22. It says, And Enoch lived 65 years, and he begat Methuselah. And Enoch 
walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. And he begat sons and daughters. So the text is very clear that Enoch walked with God only after he begat Methuselah. So he lived for 65 years old. Uh, so he lived for 65 years. At 65 years old, he gives birth to this particular son. And immediately the text says he starts to walk with God. So the implication is that Methuselah's birth had an effect on Enoch's walk with God. Now, the name Methuselah means the following. When he is dead, it shall be sent. When he is dead, it shall be sent. Secondary meaning is a messenger of death. And a third meaning is dart or javelin. Now, dart or javelin is akin to an arrow. And we know from the scriptures that arrows denote sonship. So hence, his name means when he is dead, it shall be sent. The word sent implies the apostolic principle. So the apostolic principle only comes to the fore when there's death. When there's death to self, death to your private ambition, death to your own inclinations, Jesus humbled himself unto death of the cross. If we live in the culture of death, we are eligible to be sent. So Methuselah's name means when he is dead, it shall be sent. When he comes to a place of death to self, an apostolic principle is activated in him. Okay, so he's a messenger of death, literally meaning he's he becomes the embodiment of the spirit of martyrdom. In other words, there's nothing that he would not be prepared to do to accomplish God's will. He would be obedient even unto the point of death. So only when a son is obedient to the point of being dead to self, will he be launched as a dart or an arrow in his sonship apostolically to accomplish the purposes of God. So Methuselah embodies this disposition within his name. Now when the son enters obedience to the point of death, which is dying to self, his father enters a new realm or of revealed knowledge as to who Christ is. Enoch, after Enoch becomes the father of one who is dead to self, Methuselah, Enoch enters a new phase or level in God. When Methuselah is born, when this spirit is born into the earth and activated, Enoch walks with God for 300 years thereafter. Enoch walks with God only after Methuselah, with all that his name represents, is born. Methuselah's birth and presence elevates Enoch into a heightened walk with God. So a spiritual father, embodied in the person of Enoch in this context, enters a new realm in God due to an obedient spiritual son embodied in the person of Methuselah. Now, further, the text says that he walked with God for 300 years after Methuselah is born. The number 300, amongst other things, denotes oneness. Oneness. For example, consider Gideon's 
one loaf in the dream of a man um, that the one of the Midianite um, soldiers dreamt. He, he dreamt this dream that a huge barley loaf rolled into the Midianite camp and destroyed them. And the interpretation of that dream was, this is Gideon's loaf. So Gideon's loaf, Gideon's army, that army was 300 strong. You can read Judges 7 for the details. So the number 300, again, amongst other things, denotes oneness. Oneness, 300 denotes oneness in the spirit. So Enoch walks with God for 300 years. In other words, symbolically applied, Enoch just did not walk with God. But he did so in a new degree of oneness and intimacy with the Father. The scriptures teach that it is impossible for two to walk together unless they are in agreement. Enoch walked with God. A new level of oneness in his relationship started to characterize his walk with God. Now, all of this was activated by the birth of a son who was the embodiment of the principle of death unto self so that an apostolic sending, an apostolic mandate could be activated. Now, it is in the son's best interest that his obedience elevates his father because whatever level or new level the father attains in that father's relationship with God will have a direct positive um, influence and benefit to the son. And so this is powerful if you can perceive it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The word walked also implies forward progression. So where it says Enoch walked with God, we can read into that to imply there was progression into the will and the purposes of God. And obviously Methuselah would be part and parcel of that process. So things started to develop and shift into the next phase. You as a son, a spiritual son, through obedience or disobedience, can affect the rate at which your spiritual father is able to move forward with greater speed into the fullness and the mandate of God that he carries. God provides every spiritual son with this opportunity to walk in agreement with his father. Failure to do this does not hinder the purposes of God in the father because for God will raise up another who is willing to obey to the point of death unto self. Another point that is very crucial for us to understand is that Enoch had keen prophetic sight. He was able to, from his standpoint in human history, only being seven generations from Adam, he was able to see far ahead into the future, even to the time of the end of the age. Now we glean this from the book of Jude in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 14, which says, And Enoch also, seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints. So Enoch had a prophetic capacity. Jude verse 14 is very clear. He prophesied of the coming of the Lord with ten thousand of his saints. 
only seven generations from Adam, yet he had such keen prophetic sight. And he saw the Lord's coming with 10,000 of his saints. Now, I personally believe that this spiritual sight was so sharp because his walk with God in agreement, a new level of oneness. He's walking with God for 300 years. He's not just 300 literal years, although it was literal, 300, literally 300 years, but prophetically applied, it denotes the quality of walk in such oneness with God that God was able to unveil to him aspects about the end of the age. Okay. Now, his son, Methuselah, brought him into rest through his disposition of living in a culture of being obedient even unto death. Again, I want to emphasize that this was important for Methuselah's welfare, that his father, Enoch, has keen sight prophetically into the future because that will all go well for him, the son, to be mentored or fathered by someone who has a view of the end. So in Enoch's fathering over Methuselah, he fathers his son knowing how things will pan out for humanity. And that is a huge advantage to be fathered by somebody who has such an holistic view and appraisal of God's purposes in the earth. Now, again, I want to stress the humility in a son to obey his father unto death not only will activate the apostolic mandate in him, it will also catapult the father into a brand new level or walk in God into a new degree of oneness that the father will come into, but that ultimately benefits the son in that he can be fathered by such an individual. So Enoch walked with God. Methuselah walked with Enoch as his son. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? The walk of Enoch with God became the walk of Methuselah with Enoch. Now, just as an aside, there's a wonderful cross-reference. If Enoch walked with God, we can assume he did so humbly. A text I learned in my youth that has been a blessing to me over the years is Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. It reads, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. If we are to walk in agreement with God and with His representations in our lives, that is spiritual fathers, our walk must be a humble walk. And that humility will be evidenced and expressed by the degree to which we obey and obedience unto death. And Hebrews 11 verse 12, or rather Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. His walk pleased God. So when Methuselah lives in a culture of death unto obedience, 
it activates the apostolic dynamic in him and also causes his father Enoch not to see death. For Enoch, that was physical, did not see death. For us, our spiritual fathers will not see a death to corporate destiny or purpose so long as we as sons within their households embody the principle and seek to mature and complete our obedience by being compliant even unto death even unto death so this is a very challenging thought even for me i must say and i ask us all to meditate upon these principles and to resolve in our hearts that we will be amongst those that will obey unto death that we will walk in agreement complete our obedience in god i pray this has been a blessing to you i will in the next broadcast directly after this continue this theme using examples of other spiritual fathers and sons in the scriptures may great grace and peace be your portion always i commend you to god and to the word of his grace that is able to build you up and to grant you access to your inheritance along with all the saints which are sanctified in christ bless you love you Bye-bye.